You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Soren Kierkegaard's enduring popularity might be due as much to his unconventional and fascinating life as it is to his writing. Most of our listeners are, I'm sure, familiar with its central event, which is his broken engagement to Regine Olson, echoes of which recur throughout his philosophy. But many of us have trouble contextualizing that engagement with the rest of Kierkegaard's 42 years. Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles is Stephen Backhouse, author of most recently Kierkegaard, A Single Life, which is out now from Zondervan. I am delighted that it's brought him here today. Thanks for coming on the show, Stephen. Thank you very much. It is good to be here. I'd like to talk about your book's subtitle before we get into the book itself. I know a lot of times publishers title books without authorial consent or even uh, (laughs) input. (laughs) But A Single Life seems to be a particularly interesting subtitle for a biography of Kirk. Well, I'm pretty sure I – well, it's my subtitle, and I'm pretty sure I'm doing it in the face of authorial or editorial (laughs) uh, consent because – they seem to just use the word Kierkegaard all the time, whereas I quite like the subtitle. I do too. Can, can you tell me what you were going for with it? Well, it's it's a play on lots of different aspects of Kierkegaard's life. I mean, on the one hand, you mentioned Regine Olsen. I mean, he famously has a broken romance. Uh, he chose not to be married, which is the real beating heart of a lot of his work. Um, so for a, so for for vocational reasons, he thought his life was not going to be one of being um, comfortable, married, bourgeois citizen. He was going to be against a lot of what people thought was comfortable, and he saw being single as part of that. Um, he also wrote everything he wrote. He basically dedicated to somebody who he called the single individual, which uh, sometimes he had Regine Olsen in mind when he wrote, but, but later on in life, he, he, he basically had you in mind. He wanted you to be his reader, and he said, anyone who is my reader is the single individual. And, um, yeah, so I kind of had this idea in my mind that I wanted to to bring out that he was, in some ways, the author. He's he's also thought of as the father of existentialism, so in some way he's he's at the root of a lot of our language of authentic existence and step out from the crowd or from the herd and, and, and be an authentic person. And so I just thought the single individual sort of says something about his life and also his legacy. So who knows? But there it is. I also thought there might be kind of a play on his the number of pseudonyms he used. Like he has all well, these names, yes. but it's just a single life. <laughs> it's funny. I have never thought of that before, but you're absolutely right. He, he In Kierkegaard's life, we always talk about Kierkegaard said this or said that, but in fact... Almost certainly, it was a pseudonym who wrote this or wrote that. And Soren very deliberately wanted us to not think of each of his pseudonyms as if they were speaking just for him. Uh, he very deliberately populated his world with lots of different characters. Uh, and we could talk about that later, but you're absolutely right, yes. There's, a, there's an irony in calling him the single individual because he was, in fact, an army of people. <laughs> we are legion. <laughs> Yours is not the first biography of Kierkegaard, but you you make an argument in the preface that you're doing something different from his previous biographers. Would you mind saying just a few words about what sets this book apart from Walter Lowry's or Alistair Hannay's or Joachim Garf's? I think those are the big ones. Yeah, and and, uh, Josiah Thompson wrote one in the 70s as well. Um, So now, my publishers don't like it if I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, (laughs) It's the newest one. (laughs) I I feel like... 
I feel like some of those biographies, so Hane and Garf especially, like in lots of ways, um, uh, I'm not writing the last and best word on Kierkegaard's life. In some ways, I think of my book as maybe the first and worst. And I, I, I don't think that I am the, um, the replacement for some of these monumental academic intellectual biographies, which uh, if you read Garf's biography, I mean, these are doorstops, even including his shopping lists. You know, it is, <laughs> it fills everything about Kierkegaard and, and, and the whole intellectual story of his life. And Hannay spends ages talking about what kind of university classes Soren took and what the lectures were and things. And, you know, for academics, we don't, the world doesn't need another academic intellectual biography of Soren Kierkegaard. We, we have those and they're good. And I'm not trying to set myself against them, but what we don't have is something readable, um, uh, that brings out just the exciting and odd and weird and vibrant things about Soren's life that us academics, us Kierkegaardians, we know a lot of this stuff, but it doesn't, it hasn't filtered through at all. And, and if just a normal person who is just interested in the name Kierkegaard or interested in reading a biography of an influential Christian thinker, if they were to pick up one of those monumental academic texts, they'd get bounced out of it pretty quickly. And I know that uh, because I've, tr I've had colleagues and friends ask me for biographies of Kierkegaard and, and I've given them what I had on the shelf and it, it, they haven't found Kierkegaard very appealing. Um, so I just thought, I think I need to write something that will introduce this life to people who are an educated lay readership um, who aren't already Kierkegaardian specialists. And, and so that's what I hope to do with my book. And, and so, the, I mean, your biography is very novelistic in places. You're kind of imagining conversations between people, and it's... Uh... Well, there's less imagining than you might think, actually. Um, yeah, but anyway, sorry, I don't want to <laughs> interrupt you, but... No, 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 I mean, that's, I was, I, I think I was just trailing off. So, so, so you're saying the, the conversations aren't imagined, you, you found, you found them in letters and stuff like that? Yeah, so there's, we do have a wealth of, of uh, memoirs, everybody was a, a, there's a mania for letter writing and journal keeping in, in Denmark in the 19th century, um, and uh, so we have a whole welter of information. Uh, we also have, uh, by the, after he died, Soren became a bit of a celebrity, in his lifetime he wasn't that popular but after he died a generation or so later there was an interest in his work and uh and one of his early kind of chroniclers wrote letters to all of the surviving people all his school friends and his various um chums and, and enemies of the day and asked them for for their reminiscence of soren so we have a lot of that stuff so quite often when in my book i'm giving a conversation or i'm, I'm talking about some some story for instance the whole um between Regine and Soren, the whole uh, uh, meeting and breaking up, whenever I give quotes, whenever Regine says anything, that is Regine herself saying that's what she said. Or it's, uh, it's Soren saying this is what she said. Um, so I, I try and have, a, I tried not to invent too much. What I did try and do was just pull out all this stuff that's a real, uh, I think, quite a gripping story about these people's lives and, and put it onto the page uh, and not try not to hide it behind all the... Uh, intellectual history of his life, which is also interesting, but not perhaps the same as thinking about a broken engagement or a riot at his funeral or a, a father who cursed God and was 
cursed his family as a result or anything like that. Are, uh, are, are Raging Olsen's letters available in English? Um, there are some, yeah, the best, the best place for it, there's a, a, a man named um, uh, Bruce Kiermse, K-I-R-M-M-S-E. Bruce Kiermse has collected a whole uh, series of all these letters. A lot of this material I've just described has actually come out of his book, um, where he's just put together all these things. And, and you can get Regine's uh, interviews that she gave at the end of her life. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's definitely available. And somebody has written a book called Loving Soren, which is a sort of a romantic novel from Regine's point of view. And that mines a lot of information as well. I found out about that book after I'd written mine, but uh, I've had a look at it and it does look pretty good. Very interesting. One yeah. of the things I came away with from, from your book is is the narrowness and the, the how small Copenhagen was mm. in, the, in the early 19th century. Because you think of it as a major city, but when you read the... Um, when, when you read your book, it, it comes across as kind of a backbiting small town. Well, and Soren himself, I mean, he loved it, but it's it sort of a town he loved to hate as well. And, and he, he kind of dismissively referred to it as that little market town. <laughs> and uh, the, 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 the inhabitants of Copenhagen thought of themselves as just, you know, the real bee's knees, cock of the walk, the real sort of height of creme de la creme of European society. And and he he poked fun at that as well. I mean, that was part of his life was to was to poke fun at that civilized assumption smugness and so yeah uh, Copenhagen was a real goldfish bowl uh, lots of people uh, gossiping about each other uh, incidentally that's why we know there's a little rumor that you know what was Soren's reason why did he break up with Regine was it maybe there's the theory that maybe he'd contracted syphilis or some sort of sexual disease because he was seeing prostitutes and things but uh, some other historians have pointed out they said the nature of Copenhagen at this time was so small and so gossipy that if Soren had been stepping out with prostitutes, we would have heard about it. Um, you know, that it's, it's almost, it's also, it's predictable, like how small and, and uh, how much everybody knew each other's business means that Soren wasn't seeing prostitutes because we never hear any, uh, anybody mention it ever. <laughs> and they mention other people who did, so... <laughs> sure. Well, and they, I'm, I'm sure they'd be quick to announce it, given how unpopular he was toward the end of his life. Well, exactly, exactly. Well, it's hard to talk about him without talking about his family, and especially about his father, Michael Peterson Kierkegaard. How did his father shape his personality, and especially his neuroses? Uh, so Soren described his growing up as insane. I think that's probably the best way. He said, I was insanely brought up. Um so Michael was the uh, was a peasant. He was the son of a a child of a peasant uh, farmer uh, family, and in fact, we have the records that the the priest of the Lutheran Church, the the peasant family, was connected to the Lutheran Church, and the far, uh, the priest gave the family their freedom, which is where we have the name Kierkegaard, which means churchyard. So um, so that the family or church garden. So the family actually was connected to the church. It was almost physically owned by the churchyard until the priest gave them their freedom. And so the, so Michael Peterson uh, Kierkegaard had in his effects after he died, they found the document which was granting him his, his freedom. So, I mean, real peasant stock. He then moved to Copenhagen and became a, a sort of a self-made businessman, um, became a, a woolen merchant, a hosier, and became very prosperous. But we... We kind of, he was a very gloomy man. He had a reputation for being very serious. 
Um, he had seven children, um, but they all died except for Soren and his older brother. Uh, Soren was the youngest. So, uh, so within a span of a few years, um, all of Michael's children had died and his wife had died. And he, he seemed to be convinced that his life was cursed. He had this kind of uh, doomy, gloomy religiosity about him. He was a pietist, a Moravian pietist. And he had this real sense that God was cursing him for sins that he'd committed. And, and we found out later in amongst some of Soren's journals, which we discovered after his death, that, that there was an incident in Michael Peterson's life when he was a young lad. He, he cursed God. He climbed to the top of a hill in the middle of this, the Jutland wastes, and he cur- shook his fist at God and cursed God when he was a young man. And, and uh, we wonder whether maybe that, that was an event that Michael thought that God was, was cursing him back. Um, we also know that Michael Kierkegaard, uh, his first wife, when she, she, he married a woman, she died without children. And then he married his housekeeper uh, with, within a year of his first wife dying. And the housekeeper had a child far too early for them to have been legitimately um, wed. So we know that he was having an affair with his housekeeper. So I think his first child was born sort of three months after he married his housekeeper. So there was some, you know, there was just this kind of, for a serious pietistic man, there was these kind of events in his life that just, he seemed to be plagued by guilt. And he brought up his children, especially his two surviving boys, in this home of sort of Christian seriousness. And and it was all very much about uh, arguing it was all very much about debating. So, so life for them was constantly fighting each other and winning, scoring points over each other. Um, and it was this kind of insane growing up where these three men were, grew up together fighting each other constantly, living under a pall of gloom. And that affected Soren quite a bit, um, not least of which when he became engaged finally, he, he loved Regine and she loved him, but he just thought, this, my family is too cursed to bring her into this. I don't want to bring her under this family. And, and I think that's one of the main reasons he, he broke up the engagement, was he just didn't want to ruin this woman's life by bringing her into his family. Although most of them wouldn't, wouldn't be around a whole lot longer, right? I mean... Well, um, the, 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 Soren's brother, Peter outlived Soren. He was one of the last of the whole Kierkegaards to die. Um, he was around, and, and their relationship was, was not happy either. I mean, it was kind of a, a prodigal son kind of relationship, elder brother, prodigal son kind of relationship. Soren was the favorite. Uh, he could, in some ways, he could do no wrong, no matter how profligate his life was. Um, he spent money crazily. He got into student debt. He wasn't, he wasn't a diligent student or anything like that, and yet his father seemed to love him best. And uh, Peter... Christian Kierkegaard was the elder brother, and he did everything right, and yet he never seemed to get his father's love. And so there was a real rivalry between the brothers as well, which is also a very important part of their their story. So Soren's life was one of... Um, th- there's also periods of grace. I don't want to make it all doom and gloom. I mean, there's real... We actually have records of... Because the Danish church, the Lutheran church, kept a record of who came to communion. And so we have we actually have records of when the father and the brothers came to communion together and when they came separately and you can tally that up with their different journals and you can tell that that when they came together it was time of reconciliation between them 
Man, you're not kidding. They keep records. If you... Yeah. <laughs> um, didn't didn't Soren call Peter morbidly religious? I, I, yes. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, I loved that. <laughs> and this is another thing. I mean, that that life. So, so Soren, you know, he grew up. He, he grew up uh, respecting Christianity, um, loving the person of Jesus, um, but also had a real healthy disrespect for tribalism, Christian tribalism and Christian uh, infighting and that kind of thing. And so, so the idea of, so uh, the idea of Peter, his brother kind of joining various factions and, and politically moving his way up um, the ranks. And he, Peter became a bishop eventually, and he was a real kind of career churchman in lots of ways. And that kind of attitude really turned Soren off. It didn't turn him off Christianity, but it turned him off I guess we'll get to talk about this. It turned him off Christendom. Right. And his family taught him Christendom quite a lot. The, the institutional church. Uh, not even the institutional church. This is, a, this is a common thing that people hear the word Christendom and they think that means the established church. But it, it's way more than that. It's more, it's more Christianity as, as furniture to your life. Christianity as cultural backdrop. Any society, any culture that has got Christianity in its language, in its buildings, in its um, ingrained habits, um, is Christendom for Soren. Anything it's, that makes it easy. It, it's yeah. In a world where being a Christian makes life easier for you, not harder, then you 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 know you're living somewhere in Christendom. And so you can have Christendom. I mean, just think of the U.S. I mean, this is this is probably the most the best example of Christendom currently going right now, even though the U.S. doesn't have an established church or anything like that, it still is impossible for anyone to be elected president unless they use the right kind of language when it comes to Christianity or unless they can kind of sort of hit the right buttons. And it's whatever it is that a culture has those buttons, that's for Kierkegaard what Christendom is. It might not be connected to an established church, but it's where... The language of God, the language of Christianity has become common sense, where it's become the cultural fabric of a nation. It's where anybody talks about themselves as a Christian nation, for instance. Sure. Christendom, yeah. So there you go. I mean, that, and so for, for Soren, he really drew a difference between the person of Christ and the, 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 what you find in the New Testament and the uh, structures and blind habits and religiosity and institutions that you find in modern Christendom. And he just found a big difference between those, which I think is, is uh, inarguable. I think there clearly is a big difference. <laughs> sure, but it's so interesting that his brother is such a representative of yeah. Christendom. You, yeah. you know, you wonder if he would have been quite as much against Christendom if, if he'd had a better relationship with his brother or <laughs> would he had a better relationship with his brother if he wasn't so against Christendom I guess it's a vicious circle oh perhaps I don't know I mean uh, he doesn't interestingly he doesn't bring his brother up when he's um, when he's attacking Christendom at the end of Soren's life he, he really kind of came out all guns blazing uh, he stopped using pseudonyms by the way and he started under his own name he did this thing called the attack upon Christendom where he pretty much named and shamed some of the great characters in Danish public life, the church leaders and, and so forth. And he doesn't bring his brother into that. Um, he, he kind of has a, he, he has a human, he sort of never stopped being a human being. I mean, he has a sense of love and affection and uh, allegiance to his family, but he also, he picked bigger targets, different targets when he, when he was choosing Christendom's targets. Yeah. 
What role did Peter play in the transmission of Soren's legacy? Um, well, so he basically inherited the the rights to the texts. So Soren left behind quite a large body of work. He was a uh, compulsive writer, um, and he wrote. Not only did he write over twenty five published books, uh, but he also just wrote um, even more than that in uh, in journals and unedited uh, texts and things. So he left behind this monstrous body of work, and it started to, to attract interest after he died. So Peter was sort of in charge, he was the gatekeeper for a lot of that, and there was a lot of material that didn't come out in Peter's lifetime as a result because he was embarrassed by, by his, his brother's attack on Christendom and some of that, some of that material. Um, and if, I think it sort of drove him... He was always the, the Kierkegaard boys were mercurial. I think is the best word to use. <laughs> they, they, uh, and Soren probably didn't. I don't think Soren suffered depression, even though he had highs and lows. I think Peter uh, eventually. I mean, he he seemed to have have real mental illness. Eventually, he resigned his own bishopric, and and willingly submitted himself to be a ward of the state. Uh, he seemed to have become incapable. And um, uh, and and so, and he gave as one of his reasons eventually that uh, he gave the verse: "If anyone hates his brother, he shall not partake in communion," um, uh, which is very sad and very telling of the of the kind of uh, what was going on in Peter's life. And this was long after Soren had died, um, a whole you know thirty years later kind of thing. Uh, Peter Peter Kierkegaard as an old man um, resigned his bishopric. Uh, because he hated his brother uh, and then submitted himself to this, uh, to being taken care of by the state. And basically, he died in a mental institution. Though in his defense, Soren Kierkegaard is a hard guy to love, right? I He'd mean, probably drive you crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, you say that. Now, listen, I, I, I like the guy. You know, I, I really like him. I can, I can see he's, he's odd and infuriating. Um, I find it interesting that people like Regine, if anybody had reason to hate Soren, it would be Regine Olsen, who at the age of 19 was dumped very publicly by her fiancé, who then went on to write a number of uh, books in which she was thinly disguised in the books, and he discussed their relationship in, in ways that anybody who had eyes to see would see it. If anybody had cause to hate him, it would be her, and yet she never stopped loving him. She always spoke highly of him. She kept all of his books. She read them for the rest of her life. She would every she would always get a copy of whatever it is he published. Um, and when people came around at the end of it all and were interviewing her to try and get her to dish the dirt on Soren, she never said anything bad about him. In fact, she continually uh, praised him, and she was quite aware that that what he'd done when he broke up their relationship was actually probably for a higher purpose, and she believed in that purpose. So. Uh, and, and his other family members loved him as well. So, I mean, we have, again, accounts of people coming to him on his deathbed and, and sort of loving him or finding that he was very loving and playful towards them. And so I think we need to separate the Soren of the text from the man. And we have to remember that he very he was a brilliant writer. He And he also understood this whole pseudonym business. He understood what it was to write in the voice of a character. And he thought that was very important to write under a character's voice. It wasn't just to hide his own 
identity. It was to actually put you in a different mindset when you were reading the work. And so when he adopts the voice of an angry, strident, burn everything down, stop the world, I want to get off kind of person, he's doing that on purpose. That's not even necessarily what he himself feels. He wants to get you into that mind. He wants to, he's like a man who's hitting a bee's nest with a, with a stick or a hornet's nest. You know, he, he's very deliberately trying to rouse something in somebody. So I think if you just read the last things he ever wrote, you'd think he was this angry, bitter misanthrope who hated all people and hated Christianity. But you realize it's not actually true. He, uh, uh, the people who knew him, except for his brother, <laughs> but the people who knew him, other than that, they, they continued to maintain he was a loving, uh, well-rounded, sense of humor, uh, kind person. So I, I, I want to hold those two together. I, want, I kind of say to people, let, let him hit you. you know, when, when he writes stinging words against you, let, let, let him hit you. Take the hit. Um, and see what happens, and maybe you can trust that it's coming from somebody who's, who means well or who has a higher purpose than just trying to tear you down. Maybe he's trying to make you stronger. Hmm. Certainly, yeah. I mean, that's his purpose for the attack on Christendom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anybody... It's funny, the story of Kierkegaard's transmission into other languages besides Danish is funny because when... So the attack on Christendom stuff is really fiery. You know, there's no... All clergymen are liars and Christianity... Christendom has done away with Christianity. And, you know, it's, it's real fiery stuff. And, and when he, after he died, um, there was a man named George Brandes who was a Danish philosopher who was a, a free thinker, we say in air quotes, an atheistical a Danish philosopher who discovered some of... who really liked Kierkegaard and he, sent, he, read, he wrote to Nietzsche, actually, and he said to Nietzsche, I think you'd like this guy. Um, you know, he hates the church as much as you do. And Nietzsche never did, we have no record that Nietzsche actually ever did read Kierkegaard, but we know that, that somebody thought they were on the same page. And then later on, a few years later in Germany, probably because of George Brandes, we, uh, some German sort of anti-clerical movement started, started translating Kierkegaard's attack on Christendom stuff into German as part of their anti-Christian kind of literature. Uh, little knowing that what they'd done is they've just unleashed onto the wider world probably the most articulate, passionate <laughs> Christian literature, you know, almost known to man. Um, and and, and uh, because they'd started at the end, and then because they started at the end, they, they opened up the bottle, and all of a sudden all the stuff that came before also came out, and you realized, oh, yeah, this guy is attacking Christendom because he loves Christ and Christianity, not because he hates it. Oops. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's a great irony of, of uh, intellectual history. That that it's, it's funny because it doesn't work that way in English, right? The He's not really translated into English until oh, the yeah. mid-20th century, and they don't start with yeah. Attack on Christendom. No, they don't at all. Um, I mean, he was a failure. If, if you look at it from his point of view, in lots of ways he was a failure um, in his own lifetime. So um, his some of his great enemies, some of the people that he wrote against a lot and, and had public uh, disputes with, uh, like a guy named Martinson and another guy named Grundtvig, they were being published even in English, in German and in English, even in their lifetimes. Um, and Kierkegaard was dead for, for, for almost 100 years before anybody in English was publishing him. So, you know, he, he wasn't a success um, from that point of view until quite a bit later on. And yet, yeah, I mean, the only reason we know any of those guys' names, for the most part, is because they clashed with Kierkegaard. Oh, 
there's a great yeah so so there's a great uh, quote and I, I couldn't quote it but it's from a, a guy named Alistair Hannay who's one of the biographers and I think it was Alistair Hannay maybe it was Garf Joachim Garf but you know he, he we've got all these great and the good of Danish literary society like I just mentioned Martinson there's another guy named Heiberg and um, and uh, and Kierkegaard and also Hans Christian Andersen were both contemporaries and they were both young up and coming writers in the Danish scene. And, uh, they would get invited to these literary salons, you know, uh, these sophisticated Copenhagen elites would invite, would deign to invite Soren and Hans Christian to their parties. And they were the sort of gatekeepers of like literary respectability. And it was a great honor to be invited to one of these parties. And Bagar for Hane says, you know, if, Heiberg and Martinson had ever known now that the only reason we'd remember their names is because Hans Christian Andersen and Soren Kierkegaard once went to one of their parties. They would be absolutely offended. They'd be gobsmacked um, that these, yeah, that these young whippersnappers ended up being the only reason anybody knows anything about Danish literary history at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't think most people could name a 19th century Dane besides Kierkegaard and and Hans Christian Andersen. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and what's funny is Kierkegaard knew it too. Like when he was writing, so he, he, he wrote this book called Fear and Trembling, which, you know, that's the one most people have read or heard of. And, and he, you know, even after that came out, he wrote in his journals, he said, you know, when I'm dead, this will be the book I'm known for. Like this will be the book studied, read all the world around and, the, and it will be studied in universities. And, and my name will be a, so closely associated with this book that it'll be hard to separate it. And, and, you know, he was right. Although in his lifetime when he's writing that, there's absolutely no reason why he would think that that was an accurate thing to, to predict. And yet he turned out being correct. So it's, it's kind of fun to read in hindsight what, what he was hoping for his book or what he thought might happen to it and to compare it to what really did happen. I want to talk about a couple of his early intellectual influences. Um, you, you say his two biggest at university are the uh, aesthetics professor Frederick Christian Siburn, I think I'm mm-hmm. pronouncing that, and mm-hmm. the poet and philosophy lecturer Paul Martin Moeller. Yeah, yeah. Who, who were these guys, and why were they so important to Kierkegaard? Um, well, I'll probably preface this by saying I don't, I don't, I'm not an expert in these guys, so Moeller and Siburn, so I, I'm, not, I'm not a total expert on them. I, so I don't want to kind of go, I don't want to pronounce too much about them, to be honest. Um, Muller and Sibren were both part of the the Enlightenment, or, or I guess you'd call it the Romantic movement in some ways. They're also very highly influenced by Hegel. So the great giant, actually, the great intellectual giant you want to look at is, is Hegel, the Schwabian, the Austrian uh, intellectual. And his work, his kind of idea of these, you know, there's a grand movement in history of, of art, Religion understands art, and philosophy understands religion. You know, this this great movement of looking at a human's cultural uh, development and then trying to, in in man's highest development, God is best revealed. You know, this is the Hegelian idea, and so this this idea was was being used in lots of different European countries, and in the, in in Denmark, Müller and Sibern are part of that story. So they themselves are critically, but sympathetically critically trying to do the Hegelian thing in Denmark, or they're at least working in, in a world being shaped by Hegel. So they're really interested in aesthetics. Sibren was an aesthetic philosopher. 
they're really interested in what does aesthetics tell us about truth, what does beauty and art tell us about truth, and how can that reveal the great movements of the universe. Um, and Muller was a, as well as being a professor, he was also a, a chaplain. He was a, a military, he was a naval ship's chaplain. He had a, quite an adventurous life. I think he was shipwrecked once. He was a poet. Um, so he was kind of a, swat, a swashbuckling life that he lived. So he was a, a kind of Indiana Jones, as you will, an intellectual and an adventurer. And, and so these, these two men were kind of doing the kind of work that Soren looked at and thought maybe he would want to do. So Muller represented somebody who was not only being able to write and think about a thing, but also to live it. And Sibern was somebody who was working within the Hegelian world, but able to create a sort of a critical distance from it. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what I would say those, those two gave to Soren. Um, Soren became, he stayed friends with, um, with Sibren. Sibren was the, was the, um, was the man who accompanied Soren and Regine whenever they went out in the country, he was their chaperone. And, uh, Muller was, died when, when Muller died at a young age, that was, that really affected Soren. He was very deeply sad about that. And he dedicated, uh, one of his books, uh, the concept of anxiety. He dedicated that to, to Muller. So they remained in his life in various ways. Uh, even after they kind of stopped, even after they'd re reached the end of their intellectual uh, height, as it were, and retired or died, uh, they remained to be an influence on Soren's life. To what degree would you say that Kierkegaard accepted Hegelianism? I know that's a debated hmm. topic in Kierkegaard's yeah. studies right now. Well, it's the real, Hegel's the real big, he's the big idea, he's the big guy there. I mean, some people have, so... So, so Kierkegaard is, in some ways, he, he started life as a Hegelian. Like he, 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 a bit like Sibren, he was trying to carve out a space where he could comment on Hegel, but by being Hegelian, um, by really uh, buying into or launching into this idea that there is a system that you can discover and that, that thought and historical movements move systematically through the ages, and that in thought thesis, Every thesis produces an antithesis, which together form a synthesis, which itself will form an antithesis. You know, so this is eternal movement of, of opposites combining to create a new thing, which itself will generate an opposite. And, um, progressing upward, right? Progressing Moving toward perfection. To something, yeah. And, and then what it is you're progressing to is also very debatable amongst Hegelians, right and left Hegelians and, and that kind of crowd. And so Soren was sort of doing a bit of that, um, but then he, he, he fell out of love with that. He, he soon, it was the kind of pretensions to systematizing, I think, which he fell out of love with. And he became quite critical of Hegelianism. I think it's one of those things where it wasn't really Hegel so much that he didn't like. It was the, it was the pretensions of the, the under, the second-rate intellectuals who were trying to do Hegel for Denmark or whatever. I think those are the, that's what he didn't like. So he, a lot of his ire was aimed at pretension rather than the actual philosophy. He wasn't anti-intellectual by any means, but he didn't like the pretension that he saw in a lot of self-styled Hegelians who, who were claiming to have solved, you know, the, the riddles of the universe and, and have put all of the world's thought systems into one, in one order. 
uh, with a hierarchy and that kind of stuff. That's we sometimes he, do get that sense from Hegel that like all of human history is progressing uh, toward me, Hegel. Towards me, yeah. You know, all, all of life is described by uh, by art, and all of art is described by religion, and all religion is described by philosophy. And oh, who's the best philosopher who's discovered all this? Oh, me. <laughs> I mean, Kierkegaard's got that great line in. I think it's concluding on Scientific Postscript about the professor who sets out the system and then finds he's left himself out of it. Yeah, exactly. And and he also points out that oh, yeah, they're they're able to dispense these these systematizers. You know, they they find a paragraph for China and another paragraph for India, but then they have three volumes for latest developments of Danish thought or something like that. <laughs> And it's, it's just so patently, absurdly self-referential that, that he just couldn't take any of it seriously. Yeah. Well, it's hard because I've also heard that like Concept of Anxiety is a book I've tried to read five times and it always yeah. just like beats me over the head. I never understand. And I understood that one of the reasons that book is so difficult is he's trying to make fun of well, Danish yeah. Hegelianism. You it's know, a joke. And, it's a yeah. jo- I mean, this is the other thing. I mean, it's, so he is a genius. Now, a bit like humor, it doesn't translate very well. I mean, the humor of previous generations or previous countries doesn't usually translate. But so I'm not, I'm not saying you're going to laugh, but it is meant to be a joke. So, um, so the concept of anxiety is written in a tortured philosophical style, which is almost certainly meant to be a bit of a satire on exactly the kind of tortured philosophical styles that were coming out um, amongst his contemporaries. But at the same, as as uh, as as Bart Simpson says of the video of a man getting hit in the in the private area with the football, it works on so many levels. Um, uh, Kierkegaard works on other levels. He He's writing a satire, which also ends up being a profound reflection on the concept of anxiety. So he's able to do both. And I think we just miss, we miss the joke and we just think it's serious. Uh, a classic one is his book, uh, uh, Philosophical Fragments, which um, is is meant to be, so he wrote a book called The Concluding Unscientific Postscript. Uh, which itself is a joke. You look at the word unscientific, of course, all, all of his contemporaries were trying to do a scientific examination of the world. And so Kierkegaard is going to write an unscientific postscript. But the concluding unscientific postscript, it's a postscript to a book called Philosophical Fragments. Philosophical Fragments is 100 pages long. The concluding unscientific postscript is 400 pages long. It's a joke. The, the, the little PS at the end of the book is three times the size of the original book. And, and he's meant it as a joke. You know, you're supposed to laugh just at the physical dimensions of the book as well. Um, so there's little things like that, which, uh, again, I don't think it's going to have you rolling in the aisles. But uh, he's got a twinkle in his eye. Almost everything he writes, there's a twinkle in his eye, which is very rare. If you've ever read any philosophical theology, you know how rarely there's humor in it. <laughs> right. <laughs> How often they take themselves so seriously. And, I, and, and kind of ironically, I think a lot of people who take themselves really seriously are themselves maybe influenced by Kierkegaard. They, they, they've read Fear and Trembling. They've read Concept of Anxiety. They've read Sickness Unto Death. And they think that they should also be serious, not realizing that Kierkegaard had a, he was a master of irony. Irony was, in fact, the note that struck again and again in Kierkegaard's work. Um, and that he called himself the, magist- the master of irony. And that was his, the title of his doctorate. His doctoral thesis was on irony. And, and that remained with him his whole life. Whatever you say, you also kind of say it as a joke. 
Well, sp- speaking of that, I think this is a, a seg- segue into the next question, which is, he he lived or posed as a dandy. I'm not sure there's much of a difference between living as a dandy and acting like you're living as a dandy. Yeah. He, and he did that even after his religious conversion. So he, he spends most of his life trying to convince people that he's aggressively shallow. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've always wondered about that, and I was I was wondering if maybe you could help me understand well, what he was trying to do. <laughs> maybe not most of his life. I mean, the early years. So when the the early the young man saw in the early twenties, the adolescence, when he's a student at theology, he's an undergraduate at, at studying theology, and the natural end for that is to become ordained into the Lutheran Church and to become a pastor. And as a sort of a, a, a and, and as a pastor in the in the Lutheran Church, you are a civil servant, so you're actually an employee of the state. It was a very comfortable middle class kind of uh, way to go. And um, Soren was on that route, and um, he was not interested in his theology studies at all. He was not interested in following that route, and he developed a habit for five cigars a day. He was spending all of his father's money on clothing and books and coffee and cigars and and he really he was he wasn't it wasn't a a ploy he really was a a dandy he really was just a young man about town but joe does pg woodhouse call a young man in spats you know he was a real g he's a real worcester character (laughs) and um and 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 he was that Uh, but at the same time uh, he was being this man who cared more about spending money than anything else he was going home at the evening and writing very uh, impassioned and articulate journal entries, sort of saying, I must find the idea for which I can live and die. And, I'm, and I, I think Christianity is something I, I need to take seriously. And I wonder what it is that God, you know, governance has for me. And so, you know, both those things are true. It wasn't a, an act. He really was a dandy, but he also really was intellectually and spiritually uh, serious about life and eventually what happens is um he stops being a dandy uh, uh, but he finds it useful especially during this breakup with regime time um his 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 girlfriend to, to break up with a woman would would be to bring dishonor on her you know in 19th century denmark because you'd think well what's wrong with her why why did they break up is there something wrong with her so what he did was he knew he had to end the relationship, but he didn't want to bring dishonor on her. So he, he kind of continued to foster this idea that he was an irresponsible young man. Um, and he would very deliberately go off to the plays. Uh, and, and, and just before the play starts, he would ostentatiously stand up and, and walk out so that everybody could see that he was doing that or that, that kind of stuff. Um, so he, he, there were some points where he played a bit of a public I, we mentioned the Copenhagen as a goldfish bowl, and he used that. I mean, he knew that people were watching him. And so he kind of developed this a reputation for being irresponsible so that when they did break up, it wouldn't look like she was the reason for it. Everybody would turn against him, which is what happened, in fact. Um, people did turn against him, and they thought that he was the cat and the bounder. And he was happy to let them think that because he, he thought that meant that his scheme was working. Um, yeah, and then later, late, much, uh, bit, quite a bit later in life, we haven't talked about the Corsair affair. May I, can I talk about the Corsair affair? Uh, that's on my list, but yeah, let's go ahead and talk about it. So, so what happened? I mean, a, a bit of backstory. Kierkegaard spent quite a lot of his life writing these 
these books, which he, his aim was to reintroduce Christianity into Christendom. And, and he said, you know, look, in this age where Christianity is so equated with your common culture that Christian, becoming a Christian is as easy as becoming born. You know, you look at your skin and you go, oh, I'm white and I speak Danish, therefore I must be Christian. And in that kind of world where Christianity is as easy as being born, he said, I want to make it harder. I want to make people take it seriously. And um, so he devised these pseudonyms, which were characters who represented different types of people you might find in Christendom. And they all, they don't all speak in one voice and they don't all argue the same things. And in fact, a lot of pseudonyms uh, argue with each other. And, and Kierkegaard arranged to have different pseudonymous books published on the same day sometimes, which disagreed with each other. And he was very deliberately trying to create what everybody assumed was a matter of course and common sense. He was trying to make it harder and more problematical. And he wanted you to think, he wanted you, the single individual, to read it and decide for yourself, not to just accept what everyone around you is doing. And so he had this very elaborate system. This is where the Hegelian stuff comes in, I think, where he had this elaborate system of moving through the stages of religiosity in Christendom and eventually, hopefully, coming out to where authentic Christianity was a, was a possibility for you. He wasn't trying to make you a Christian. He was at least trying to get you to the point where if you rejected Christianity, you were rejecting what it actually was. Not what, you, not what you thought it was or not what your common culture told you it was. So for him, it was really important that his name was not associated closely with all of these different books because he was very deliberately trying to avoid the idea that somebody says, oh, if Soren says it, then it must be okay. And he said, I'm not a waiter. Christianity isn't this thing I can give you on a silver platter, all whole. It's a thing you have to deal with and work with yourself. And, uh, you know, it's a embrace as our, you know, the evangelical cliche, you know, it's, it's not a religion, it's a, it's a relationship. And this is, Soren would totally agree with that. He said, you know, you can't, you can't have a relationship with Jesus just because everybody else is. You have to have one yourself. So what happened was, towards the end of, of this, uh, this pseudonymous sort of system he'd come up with, he then wrote this book called The Concluding Unscientific Postscript, which was in his mind the end of his scheme. He was going to finish his writing after this. He was going to end the whole pseudonymous kind of framework. There was a sort of a scurrilous magazine called The Corsair, which means pirate, of course. And it was a bit like, I mean, I think of like the National Enquirer or, or I don't know, US Magazine or People Magazine. Think of a cross between some sort of like low tabloid filled with gossip and uh, ugly pictures of celebrities, and a kind of a gossip magazine, you know, that, that's like, like people magazines. It's something like that, a celebrity magazine. It was, this Corsair was kind of a celebrity magazine of Danish society, which very deliberately liked to kind of build people up and then tear them down. And it had a real attitude of kind of um, taking no prisoners and making fun of anybody in public life. And um, Soren, during, towards the end of his writing, what he thought was going to be the end of his writing career, Soren said, ah, uh, oh, to, be, to be made fun of in the Corsair is a positive compliment because clearly the Corsair seems to only go after people who are trying to do something good, who are trying to step apart from the crowd um, and trying not to just go with the lowest common denominator. So clearly to be insulted by them must be a, a compliment. So he basically picked a fight. And 
the Corsair picked up the glove that Soren had dropped, and they went for it. And for about a year, just over a year, they, they waged a, a merciless kind of cartoon caricature campaign against him. Um, they revealed him as the author of all the books. Was that not they, an open secret to begin with? Well, it was an open so an open secret means to the people who were kind of educated and elite, they they suspected or had a pretty good idea that Soren was the author. But Kierkegaard wasn't just writing for the educated and the elite; he was also writing for everyone. Um, and it was more than just revealing his name. It was attaching his name to these books that he very deliberately tried. It would be like everyone knows that Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. But it would be like every time you quote Hamlet, instead of writing Hamlet, you wrote Shakespeare instead. You know, as Shakespeare said, to be or not to be, that is the question. And, and you're like, no, that's missing the point. Shakespeare might have written it, but it's Hamlet who says it. And that's important. And this is what this is Kierkegaard's relationship to his pseudonyms. Is he said, yeah, maybe I'm responsible for them in some way, but they're what they say, the context that they're saying it matters. And what the Corsair did is they just flattened all that out, and they just associated his name with all of these things, um, sort of ruining the ruining the effect that he'd been cultivating. Um, and the other thing is they, they published lots of cartoons of him, which they very deliberately made fun of. His, he had a hunchback, um, and he, his clothes didn't fit properly. And, and so they very deliberately made fun of his appearance, his physical appearance. And so for Soren, who loved people and loved going for walks in public, that's how he thought, actually, and that's how he, he, he loved talking to lots of different types of people, um, it became impossible because these, these magazines just made him a laughing stock. And some of the very people that he was trying to reach um, ended up just sort of making fun of him or were embarrassed to be seen with him uh, because, of, because of the caricatures that were being put about. And, and his name became associated. The name Soren started being used in, in like plays. If, if anybody wanted a, a shorthand for an idiot, a character who was just a foolish idiot spouting Jeez. nonsense. They'd use the word Soren, you know, and people would laugh, and they'd know that that's who they meant. So, you know, his he became a public laughingstock. He became a public figure in a way that he had been very deliberately trying to avoid. He didn't want people to look at him. They want he wanted people to look at the 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 complex works that he had made. And so, at the course, I just made it all about him, and so that affected the way he his public persona as well, and and he sort of. He was totally aware of this. He said, look, I'd, I've spent my whole life writing these books about how to become a Christian, and the Corsair has made it all about the length of my trousers. And it's true. He became just known for whether one leg was shorter than the other. Um, yeah, so his public life became quite important for him. And so then he had to cultivate a different kind of public persona, and he became a bit of a recluse. So he, or he, he stayed at home a lot. It was painful for him to go out. We have stories of like you know bootshine boys running and throwing rocks at him and then running away and that kind of stuff. So I mean, it was, it, there was a bit of a low-level persecution going on actually. People snickering at him as he walked past and that kind of stuff. It's hard uh, to imagine a philosopher yeah. being a public yeah. figure in that way. I don't even know if there is a if there is an equivalent today. I I just think our Western societies are so much bigger and multifaceted and dumber. I mean, we're just so anti-intellectual in lots of ways that we don't consider a philosopher to be worthy of attention anyway. People might throw <laughs> rocks at uh, Richard Dawkins. Uh, yeah, right. 
But nobody's making fun of Richard Dawkins' physical appearance in the same way. I don't know. I, I just I don't think there's an equivalent. It's you, hard no, you, to you're probably because it, it it would be almost like you you would have to combine the gossip magazine with some sort of academic journal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can think of think of celebrities who get who get pilloried in the uh, you know built up and then and then uh, brought down low. You know, think of Britney Spears in her lowest days or something like that. You know, and then you get people publishing photos of of somebody with a you know. Who's out, who's out of shape, a former beauty who's now out of shape or something like that. So their whole life gets reduced to one bad fashion choice or one bad, you know, wrinkle or something like that. And then that's, that's a little bit more where Soren was at, I think. And, and it wasn't about his ideas. So, so if we make fun of Richard Dawkins, if, if Richard Dawkins goes into some place and people make fun of him, they're kind of making fun of him because they don't like his ideas. Whereas if when Kierkegaard went around, they're making fun of him because they didn't like, because he looked funny which is a great insult to somebody who spent their life trying to get people to think about ideas. Did the Corsair people ever express any kind of regret over what happened? Yeah, they did actually. Well, two of them. So one of them is the um, guy named uh, Goldschmidt, who was, who was a Jewish man. And in fact, being Jewish was part of his story. Um, cause it was, you talk it about this in the book. Yeah, it wasn't easy being Jewish in Danish society. Denmark never had the kind of open, to their credit, They've never had the sort of violent anti-Semitism that other nations in, the, in Europe have had. Um, and uh, Goldschmidt was a Jewish man who was, who was a literary uh, figure, a young man. Um, but he was always constantly aware of being a bit of an outsider. Um, he was sort of patronized. So nobody was violent towards him, but he was sort of patronized and thought of as a, as a foreigner, even though he was Danish. And he wrote, he was the editor of this Corsair, but he kept it secret because it was, because he had literary ambitions that were more sophisticated than the Corsair. And he had a friend, who, also named Muller, uh, not to be confused with Soren's teacher, who, who also had literary ambitions and who also wrote these kind of poisonous pen pieces under, under anonymity in the Corsair. And it was these two who, who waged this attack on Soren. And Muller never repented. He was always very bitter. But uh, Goldschmidt did have a friendship to Soren and, and grew to regret what he'd done. Um, and he recognized in, in himself that he'd kind of done it a bit out of um, jealousy of Soren as well. And he'd been bridling, but Soren had patronized him a bit. And, and um, here, here Soren was this man who, who would kind of pull Aaron aside and give him advice on how to write or how to dress and how to behave in public. He was quite sort of patronizing. I think it was meant well, but it, it rankled because Aaron looked at his life and he said, look, I'm the publisher of a, of a magazine. I've been published. My novel has been published in Danish and German and English. And, you know, I'm achieving all sorts of successes. And here's this Soren Kierkegaard who nobody's ever heard of outside of Denmark. And he's giving me advice. And so there was this kind of uh, sense of jealousy as well, which probably would lay behind some of this attack. Um, yeah, but he, he grew to regret it, and he, he published some nice things about Soren after Soren died. Well, we're running out of time, but we've got to talk about Kierkegaard's funeral, <laughs> which is a, a real travesty. Um, can, can, you, can you give us the, the details on the funeral? Well, again, can you, imagine, can you imagine any political, theological, philosophical figure today who at their funeral would probably co- may, might cause a riot? Um, I don't know. Zizek? 
Do you think Zizek would cause a riot? <laughs> I think he would love to. <laughs> exactly. They would love it. But it's, I just can't think of anyone, really. I mean, I can think of people who are, who are notorious, but I can't imagine that at their funeral, the whole city, you know, is going to turn out to their funeral. And um, so what happened was Soren had died in the middle of this attack on Christendom. He died in 1855. He was only 42. He, he always had ill health, you know, as a result of his, of his twisted spine. And he collapsed on the street, and a few months a month later, he died in the hospital. And he was in the middle of this vociferous attack on Christendom when he died, in which he, you know, said, look, the reason there's no Christianity left in this country is because of the church, uh, because the church has equated it with being a civilized, you know, good old patriot. So, so there's no Christianity left. And when he died, his family, remember his brother was a bishop, um, they decided to have Soren's funeral in a church in the main church in Copenhagen, the sort of mother church of all Denmark. So, which obviously is not perhaps the wisest thing to do. And so at his funeral, it was really crowded. There was just, there wasn't enough room in the church. It was full to bursting. Um, uh, if anybody's ever been to Copenhagen, they'll, they'll know it's called the mother church or our lady. Um, and it's, it's quite a beautiful church with uh, some famous statues all up and down of Jesus and the disciples, the Torvald and statues. Um, so it's this huge church with lots of columns. And we have this, we have for eyewitness accounts that there was nowhere to sit and people were rammed up against the columns and sitting on the steps of the statues and this kind of stuff. And they were all, wait, they weren't there because of Soren. They were there to see what was going to happen because he was this notorious person. And, and it was kind of obvious that like the actual family and friends of Soren were being crowded out by all the gawkers who just wanted to see what was going to happen. And uh, just as the casket was being brought in, there was this kind of unruly mob which started to agitate and they kind of um, were crowding up close to the casket. And, and they were the sort of, they were Soren supporters, actually. They were the kind of people who didn't like the church. They were the kind of, they were the ones maybe who just read the attack on Christendom and nothing else, if that makes sense. And they didn't like the church. And they were saying, this man shouldn't be buried here. This is a travesty. Um, and then, so they were kind of roiling and angry. And of course, the church also, the, all the church, there was no, except for the ones who absolutely had to be there, there was no church figures there because they all were staying away out of protests because they also thought there's no way this man should be buried in church. And then there was this, the doors burst open just before the service started and, and in walked a whole bunch of different sort of class of Soren supporters. And these were the, the kind of uh, young university types who perhaps had read more of his work than other people had. And they burst in and they kind of muscled the, the local toughs out of the way and they, they formed a, a, a circle around Soren's coffin and they sort of stopped anybody from agitating anymore and because they, they wanted to promote a peaceful funeral. They were his friends. And uh, so, you know, this is kind of, I just, anyway, proper fighting, proper aggravation inside a funeral over whether this man should actually be there or not. And, and then he probably after, wouldn't have wanted to be there, right? I mean... Yeah, he wouldn't have, I don't think he, he would have thought that was ridiculous. He would have seen it as an attempt, which it probably was, an attempt from the official church to kind of absorb this person back into their ranks after they were dead. You know, that kind of right. that, uh, deathbed. To, <laughs> to make him less monstrous. Yeah, and then at his actual burial in the, in the churchyard, in the uh, graveyard, while he was being buried, um, um, one of his nephews actually stood forward 
and it was illegal to speak. If you're not ordained at a funeral, it's illegal to speak. And this man stepped forward anyway, and he started to speak. And the priest who had to be there said, no, you're not allowed to talk. And this man said, I must, my conscience won't allow me to stay silent. And the crowd <laughs> said, let him speak, let him speak. And, and uh, Heinrich, this is a man named Heinrich, uh, stood up and he, he was a doctor actually in the, in the local hospital. And he basically said, you know, the Soren, my uncle Soren stood for everything I stand for. The church is the whore of Babylon. And he kind of railed against the church. And he read out from chapters from the book of Revelation. And he kind of made a real, quite a, quite a good, quite a prophetic stand, really, against the powers that be. And the crowd cheered. And then, and then they all waited expectantly for what was going to happen. And nothing happened. And then, and then Soren was buried. And it was just this kind of sense of, like, chaos. What was going to who was going to speak next? And poor Heinrich, he was charged a uh, hundred dollars for the, for insulting the church <laughs> later <laughs> on. <yeah. laughs> well, I have uh, been steering this conversation so far, but in the spirit of hospitality on Christian humanist profiles, we'd like to let our guests have the final word. Uh, w- what would you like our listeners to know that we haven't already talked about? Well, you know, Kierkegaard is hard going. I think I already mentioned before, like, you know, let, let read him and see what you think you know let let him be hard like when when he wants to be complicated he's doing it on purpose it's because he wants you to think hard and when he wants to be funny he can be funny and he'll make you laugh there's more humor in Kierkegaard than in any other philosopher I can guarantee you Um, when he wants you to think or love or worship he will be leading you into thinking and loving and worshiping like you know let let it happen to you um, I would say his books can be hard to, it's hard to know where to get, where to start. And I recommend anyone starts with the final book that he wrote, the one that he really did think would be kind of finally the end of his authorship. And it's called For Self-Examination. For Self-Examination. I th- and that was the one that he wrote. And then it was after he'd written that, there was a period of silence. And then he went into his attack on Christendom. But I think the four self-examination probably encapsulates best what Kierkegaard was trying to get at. Uh, and it's not written. It's not complicated. It's not hard. It's, it's written for normal people. And uh, I think it's very moving and very uh, hard to read, not because it's difficult, but because it makes me, makes me face myself. Um, as a, as a, a professor once said, um, when Soren Kierkegaard is wrong, that's between Soren and God. When Soren Kierkegaard is right, that's between you and God. <laughs> and I think I'll leave it there. We should also point out your book, um, after the biography portion, has a write-up for every single book Kierkegaard published. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's a useful resource even beyond the biography because it can, can help our listeners get into some of those more difficult books. Yeah, I, I wrote a little sort of 500, uh, basically 500, 600 word overview of every single one of his published books. Um, and it's separated from the main text. So people who aren't interested in the intellectual stuff don't have to engage with it. But then again, I mean, um, a lot of readers, they, they only want the intellectual stuff. So I'm very happy to also talk about his books and what's going on in them as well. So I, I think the whole package is there. But uh, So yeah, it's a resource for students as well as people who just want to read uh, a story about an interesting guy. 
it's a good place to start in uh, in in reading Kierkegaard. Uh, Stephen Backhouse's new biography, Kierkegaard: A Single Life. Uh, it's out from Zondervan now. We'll have a link to it on our website, which is ChristianHumanist.org. Thanks again for coming on the show, Stephen. Thank you very much. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.